Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned, independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at banyan.com. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Banyan Books podcast. Today, we are in conversation with Judith Hansen Lassiter. Judith Hansen Lassiter, PhD, has been teaching yoga since 1971, when she realized it was her calling in life. She holds a doctorate in East-West psychology and is a physical therapist as well. Dr. Lassiter helped to found Yoga Journal Magazine, the Iyengar Yoga Institute in San Francisco, and the California Yoga Teachers Association, of which she is the president emeritus. She has coined such paradigm-changing phrases as yoga off the mat and living your yoga. Our honored guest is widely recognized as one of the foremost teachers in America. She trains yoga teachers in asana, kinesiology, yoga therapeutics, and the yoga sutras. And she leads workshops and retreats throughout the U.S. and abroad. She's also a pioneer in the teaching and practice of restorative yoga. Dr. Lassiter writes extensively about yoga. Her feature articles, columns, and essays appear in numerous books, magazines, and anthologies. She's the author of 10 books, including Relax and Renew, Restore and Rebalance, Yoga Body, 30 Essential Yoga Poses, and Living Your Yoga. Today, Dr. Lassiter is with Banyan Books in conversation about her latest book titled Teaching Yoga with Intention, The Essential Guide to Skillful Hands-On Assists and Verbal Communication. In this book, Dr. Lassiter shares insights for effective and appropriate communication through words and touch between yoga teachers and their students. She offers essential guidance for teachers to communicate verbally as well as when, how, and where the use of touch can be used to appropriately further a student's development. Also, she offers guidance for students to take ownership of their practice. In my opinion, this is just the kind of nuanced stuff that needs to be widely discussed in all yoga studios, schools, and communities. It's invaluable for teachers and students at all levels of practice. If you'd like to learn more about Judith Hansen Lassiter and her work, please visit her website. You can go to judith.yoga, judith.yoga. Judith Hansen Lassiter, 
Thank you so much for being with us today. It's really an honor to have you here. Thank you, Ross. And thank you for that um, introduction. I sometimes wonder who that person is when I hear that some of those things. And so I'm very excited to be with you and to be with everyone. This is my 11th book now. And I wrote it during the pandemic. And I'm happy to talk about it with you and answer questions later. Thank you. Yes, we'll be taking questions from the audience. So please, everybody, feel free to submit your questions for Judith in the Q&A tab, and we'll get to as many of those as we can in the last 15 minutes or so. Now, Judith, if you were going to guide us through a centering practice to find stillness before we continue with the conversation, so I'll hand over to you. All right. I like to start class, yoga class, and sometimes I even, if I'm in a board meeting or I say, can we just just sit, sit for one minute, just to let go of the hustle and bustle that got us to this moment at this time of day and help us be really here so we can enjoy each other, enjoy what we're talking about, listening, learning. Uh, so uh, if, you, if you would like to sit up in front of your sitting bones, and you know your sitting bones if you've ever been horseback riding, so not back on the tailbone, but forward. So you're in front of your sitting bones and slightly drop your head. I'm gonna ring my bells and I'd like us to sit, I don't know, I don't time it, but approximately one minute. And then I'll ring the bells again and I'll tell you a story about this one minute sitting. So if you're ready, slightly drop the head. So I first um, heard about this one minute sitting in a Buddhist magazine, a simple Buddhist magazine. It was about a high school teacher who taught in a troubled high school, which is sort of a redundant term, I think. High school is a turbulent time. And he started asking his, he taught math. Math students would come in and just to sit quietly for one minute, which they rebelled in the true teenage spirit. Uh, and then they started liking it. And if he forgot, they'd remind him. Now he wasn't teaching Dharma. He wasn't using Pali words or Sanskrit words, or he wasn't just say, close your eyes, you know, sit, 
sit with a long spine and just be silent for one minute. And pretty soon it started spreading out in the school. And what happened was a great reduction in truancy, a great reduction in violence and a higher attendance to school. Just from one minute of remembering to be present because being present in and of itself is not difficult. It's remembering to do it in the whirlwind we call our life. So never underestimate the power of one minute of silence. Thank you. You're welcome. Now, you kind of had a moment of a, a minute of silence and a realization in the first ever yoga class that you taught. I'm wondering if you can, you can tell all of us the story about how you ended up teaching your first yoga class and the experience that you had about lineage and the role of the teacher. Yes, but at first I wanna tell you all, if you can see behind me that, that rug, not an in, not expensive fancy rug, it's just a simple rug that I, that's what we did yoga on in those days before we had the, the mats, you know the non-skid mats. So that was the very rug I was sitting on when this experience happened to me. My, I was eh, taking classes. I worked at the Y, the YWYMCA combined student Y across the street from university. And as a perk, I was able to take yoga classes. So I started taking them. And after the first class, I got up the next morning and I did what I remembered. They were Shivananda, Asana, Pranayama, Meditation. And it was as if one day I didn't do yoga and the next day yoga was something I did every day. It was like someone just opened a door. So 10 months later, not even one year, I went several times a week and practiced on my own. Several uh, 10 months later, my teacher called me aside. She said, we're moving actually up near you, Seattle, in the Northwest US, would you like to take over the classes? And without thinking, and I'm not a particularly, you know, impetuous person, I said, sure, that sounds great. So on Friday afternoon, I wasn't a yoga teacher, and Monday morning, I had 200 students in my classes. Wow. But that was okay because I was 24 and I knew everything. So I go into class the first day. And I unfurl my little robe and my white cotton yoga pants on, which is what we wore in those days. And I sat on my mat and there were 25 people all lying down. In those days, we came in and lay down and we rested before we started. It's something we need more of now. And I panicked. I have an hour. I had no lesson plan. I had no idea what I was going to do. So I remembered I'd been taught when you feel that way to just take a few slow breaths. So I did that. Then I was given a powerful gift. I, I let go into that breath and into that moment, and I had a powerful gift. And the gift was, I had the sense of my teacher standing off my right shoulder behind me. And this was the kind of embodied kinesthetic sense that you want to turn your head and look. It felt so real. 
and her teacher behind her and off into a line of infinity. After her, it was an Indian man. And then it was just all the way back into the mists of time. And they were all holding, they were holding a bucket, which they were passing to me. And she handed me in my image, in my mind, she handed me this bucket of water. And I had what I like to call a blinding flash of the obvious, which happens to me a lot. And I thought, oh, I'm the bucket. I'm not the water. I'm, I'm that which through this message comes. I am not the message. And I just completely calmed down. And I like to say, open my mouth, start teaching. And I'm still doing it 50 years later. So I think with that idea, that's, that is imbued through the book and through my teachings is that to teach yoga is an honor and a privilege and not a right. We are the bucket and we are to take care of ourselves with our own practice, living our yoga, the precepts, what living, becoming the practice eventually so that there is a deep depth, a depth to what we say. It has a resonance with people because we speak from our own experience, our own practice, our own truth, and with humility. And that if we get confused and believe that it's us, then the ego jumps in and starts messing things up. And that we see that in the yoga world all the time, gurus and teachers who get really big and then it kind of all falls apart. So we need to, I think we need to actively cultivate taking care of ourselves physically, mentally, spiritually, psychologically, learning, opening, letting go, opening up and letting go, opening up and letting go all day long, every day, all the time in our practice so that we can be, the, we can be the best bucket. We can, we can be the bucket that offers someone an understanding about their true nature and, and teach them the most important thing a human being can learn, in my opinion. Would you like to hear what that is? Yes, please. I am not my thoughts. I, my true self is consciousness. And thought is an epiphenomena of consciousness. But I am not that which I think. My brain creates scientifically, physiologically, something like 60,000 thoughts a day, most of them unconscious. Mine usually are things like this. I wake up. When do I get to go back to sleep? <laughs> what am I going to wear? And what's next is a favorite mantra of mine. It seems like I do this. Okay, what's next now? I'm going to do this now. So, but that is not who we are. And if we identify with thoughts, I mean, this is not original from me. Every great spiritual teacher, Buddha comes to mind. You are more than that. And so 
if we can be a part, a humble part of helping people to understand that. So when I was in my first yoga class and I was lying in Shavasana, the re deep relaxation, and the teacher said something about let the thoughts flow through your mind like the wind through the trees. And I understood that disidentification, that separateness, that beginning of the witness, that stepping back and seeing thoughts like the river, but that's not, there's something behind the river. And then re recognizing that is to recognize that we are in a jail of our own making and the cell door is unlocked and always has been. And so I call it recognize and remember. Mm -hmm. Recognize. No, remember and recognize. Let's see, how's, how, how do I like it? Um, first, you have to recognize that you're not your thoughts. And then you have to remember to hold that sense of presence with you, not just in triangle pose, not just in meditation or pranayama, but right now, you and I together holding that separately and together rooted in something bigger than our ego. Yes. I'm, I'm curious um, when you look at the, at the current landscape and culture of yoga in the West, um, there is definitely a tendency towards approaching yoga as a fitness practice only, which is great. It's good. It's healthy. It's a good thing. However, I'm wondering your outlook on these missing aspects from this holistic, this beautiful life science that yoga is. Um, what do you see in, in the world of yoga at large right now in the West uh, as, as good and strong? And what are the pieces that we can do better at cultivating in this yoga culture? Well, there's a saying in Texas where I grew up, and it's a mile wide and an inch deep. <laughs> and yoga in our culture has been embraced, but, and this is just my opinion, so it's not the truth, it's my point of view, that when something becomes totally spread out through a culture, it becomes thinner and thinner and thinner, whether it's a hairstyle or a fashion or a new idea it thins out. So I think that from my personal experience, when I started my first yoga class, I didn't want anything to do with philosophy or spirituality or any of that. I wanted to feel better so I could dance again. Don't talk to me about that stuff. And here I am. <laughs> so I think that what we need to do as teachers is to stand in our own light, teach from our true experience, and, and offer our students something in an asana class that's a, that's a little bit deeper. Sometimes I'll say, let's think about satya truth, the practice, that, because in Sanskrit, the ya means at the end, the uh, satya means actively doing it and being truthful 
Am I truthful in this moment in my forward bend? Am I really listening to my body or am I busy telling it? What, what is the truth in this moment for me? Am I being truly here or am I just going through the motions? Am I already thinking about, am I true to the practice? You know, just anything like that, because I believe people come to yoga wanting that, whether they know it or not, because they could be at the fitness class next door. And yoga, by yoga, I mean the whole process of integration, not just lotus pose. Right. Thank you. And, and I, I mean, the, the book has a, has a beautiful focus on communication and touch. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about, I mean, you got into NVC, nonviolent communication, and that's a big piece in the first section of the book, um, is speaking and listening from the heart, using empathy, um, getting, getting agreement from your students. Can you tell us a bit about how you came to nonviolent communication? And then can you tell us a little bit about how to use that in, in a yoga class? Well, my husband went to a Zen meditation day up at Green Gulch, south, uh, north of San Francisco. And the teacher started talking a little bit about it. You know, in the Yoga Sutra, it, it talks about practice of telling the truth, but it doesn't tell you how you do that. So he, he went to that and he started getting really turned on about it and started reading about it. So he came home one day and he said, and I said, I feel something. And he said, that's not a feeling. <laughs> what? It was the worst possible way to introduce me. Like, you're not talking right. So nonviolent communication is I, I went to a workshop with the founder, Marsha Rosenberg, and ended up going to nine trainings with him because I found that it was a way to live satya, a way for me to speak what I want in the relationship and equally hold as precious what you want. And I found that when I started paying attention to the intention of my words, what do I really want? Okay, here's a perfect example of not a violent speech, okay? My husband and I go to a party. Sometimes he would have a beer or two at parties, not a big drinker or anything. But we read, we're very clear. I don't really drink either. I mean, don't give me a half a glass of wine. Expect me not to lie down on the floor and go to sleep. <laughs> but, but so we always were very clear at parties. He said, he said you know, I'd like to have a beer tonight. It's Friday night. I'm tired. These are my friends, you know, whatever. So, sure. Okay. You know, and I would drive. We were very specific about that. So he was saying something and I, and I looked at him and I said, now listen to this. You don't want another beer, do you? Now, Ross, tell me what that really says. I don't want you to have another, have another beer. <laughs> yeah. that too. But I was not raised to do that. That is very passive aggressive. That is violent speech. Here's a better way to say it. I notice you've had two beers and now you're getting a third. I'm feeling a little uneasy because I've already had a little bit of wine. Um, how do you want to work this out? 
I know you wanted to, you like this, a special homemade brew your friend made or whatever, you know, having empathy for the other, guessing what the other is thinking and coming to a place where both people's needs are met. Maybe not the way you thought they were going to get met, but in another way. So I got a really rough introduction and then somehow I persisted and I find it is the most I mean, finding yoga, studying with BKS Iyengar, who I don't study with, well, he's dead now, but I, I studied with him for a while, and learning in VC. So here's an example. Do you want a story? Please. I love stories. Me too. So I'm off in another state teaching a restorative yoga teacher training. And I mention very briefly about the ethics of teaching. I believe it's better, just cleaner not to have relationships, uh, personal relationships with your students, not to lend them money, not to get, just get enmeshed with them does not help them or you. And we need to be careful when we, when we, when we do that. Something about ethics, like very broad. A woman sitting two thirds of the way back in the room start crying. People were handing her Kleenex. And she said, I can't believe you're saying that about my guru, what you're saying, talking about my guru like that. And I'm thinking, I didn't know she had a guru. I have no idea who she is. I never said the word guru. I don't know who it, I mean, I wasn't talking about the guru because I had no idea who it was. And I never talk about other teachers from the mat. I was dumbfounded. Now, the old me would have tried to defend, educate, but that's not going to work. So I gave her empathy and it sounded like this. So are you wanting us to know how important your relationship with your guru is and how you want, he respect him and you want everyone else to respect him? That was a guess. I could be totally wrong, Ross. I could be, and I'm open to being wrong. And she kind of straightened up and she said, yeah. And I gave her a couple more rounds of that. And she quieted right down and we went on with the class. And then at the break, people came to me and said, how did you do that? Anyway. So this is the kicker. At the end, remember, I still didn't know who her guru was. So I, I went to, I was at the end and she came up to me and she said, may I give you a hug? Now, I never offer to hug students, but generally, uh, you know, often, not always, but they may I hug you. I say, I feel good about it. And I say, okay, but I don't do it myself, founder. So she said, hugged me and she said, this was the best workshop I've ever taken. And thank you so much for apologizing about what you said about my guru. Now I was, I have to admit, there was a, there was a millisecond where I wanted to go. I never, you know, but I didn't, I just looked at her and I took the high road and I said, you're welcome. And that's nonviolent communication. Empathy is understanding independent of agreement. So that I can have empathy for the way you might feel, even though I think it's quote unquote wrong. I could understand how hurt she would, I would feel if someone was criticizing my guru. So I just gave, I just reflected back to her. So do you want us just to know that you respect him and you want everyone to respect him and you think that's the way we should act as yoga teacher? Yes, yes, yes. She felt heard. She felt seen. And it, 
doesn't really matter. We, she felt connected. The room, which was pulling back at this, you know, potential bump in the road was connected by that experience. And I still, to this day, don't know who that was. So how do you feel hearing that? That's very NBC. You're asking me. Yeah, how do you feel hearing that? I love that story. You ha and it's in the book. And I, mm -hmm. I really I really liked it. And, and I've seen those kinds of things happen myself, too. And it's it's so counter to our, our natural impulse, like you say, to educate someone. No, that's not what I was saying, to try and set the record straight. But really, you're just, you, what you say in the book is, doesn't matter what the teacher, I'm paraphrasing what the teacher says, it matters what the student hears. That's absolutely true. Communication is not about what I say right now, it's what you hear. Did you ever play that game telephone when you were a kid? Yes. You would sit in a circle, and with birthday parties we would play this, and you whisper something like the moon is blue to someone, and they whisper it all the way around, and it comes around, and it says, the man wore a red shirt, and you go, so it's, it's what the other person hears. And I like this definition that I use, I made up that empathy is understanding independent of agreement. It's when I talked to her, I didn't say, oh, I'm so sorry that you are upset about what I said. I didn't agree with her. I didn't fight with her. I didn't educate her. I was, I was present with her with empathy. And that created a healing. Yeah. And we, we have to let go. In order to do that, we have to let go of something super delicious. Being right. So I saw a cartoon recently where there were two people, humans, sitting, looking at a table, a round table between them. And there was a, a, a sort of a round curved number six. And this person said, it's a six, but this person sitting on the opposite side said, no, it's a nine. And that's what most arguments are about in relationship. They're about perception because we don't, we're not going to argue about who won the world series in 1952 because we can look it up. That's a fact, right? We're arguing about perception and perception does not shape your life. Perception is your life. Do you remember a few years ago when there was a big argument on the internet about a dress, whether it was brown or blue? No. Okay, you should check that out. Okay. Everyone was getting on, you know, on Twitter and Facebook and, you know, there was an Instagram then in the old days. And there was a picture of a dress and some people said that's blue. And then some other people said, no, it's brown. And there were vehement arguments. Well, I'm, I could see it, but I could see both of them. <laughs> But anyway, some people can see. But what was so fascinating is then it came out that it depended on uh, physiologically the way your retinas were constructed. Like some people, and they were arguing about whether it was brown or blue. And those kind of arguments, like you said you were going to be home at nine o'clock and now it's 1030. No, I didn't say that. Yes, you did. No, you didn't. Or here's a great one. I can give you some great ways to have arguments with people. One of them is to say, it's hot in here. 
No, it's not. Yes, it is. But if you say, it's too hot for me right now in here, I can't say to you, no, it's not. You see the difference? Mm -hmm. It's really a way of being absolutely clear of what we're really saying and listening with our whole heart. Communication is, is the, how the book starts out. That's the first section. Mm -hmm. The use of touch is part two. Now, this is an area where things get a little more sticky in the yoga world um, with, with touch. I'm wondering if you can, first of all, tell us, uh, you know, maybe give us the overview of what appropriate touch is in a yoga class for everybody to understand. And, and then also what kind of effect touch actually has on our nervous system? Well, I'd like to start with that. Okay. It is fascinating that I quote the, the, the source in this, in that chapter, it's a footnote. If you want to look it up, it's a book on touch, but research has found that if someone I like and know and am intimate with touches my arm, I react with pleasure before it can go through my thinking brain. It's faster than that. But I was on the airplane. I'm on airplanes a lot, or was, sitting next to this man. We were chatting, and it was, he was very kind and friendly, and he kept reaching over and just putting his hand arm on his hand on my arm and I'm like instantly jumping back because I don't know him and it wasn't a conscious thing so it's not just the physical experience of touch there's a much deeper emotional um, filter that is embedded in our physiology. Nothing feels better than someone we love giving us a hug. But if someone I don't know wants to touch me, I'm like, and finally I said, please don't touch me. It was too intimate. It was like too much. I just, it wasn't, it, it didn't have no malevolent feeling. He wasn't coming on to me. He wasn't, you know, he just was touching me. Like he felt connected to me. So he wanted to touch me and I didn't want that. So we need to, I think, let go of the idea as yoga teachers, assuming that just because someone is standing on their mat in front of us, that gives us the right to enter their sacred space and touch them without their clear assent. May I touch your arm? I ask every student, students I've had for 35 years, may I touch your shoulder? People say, oh yes, I love it when you touch. Do I And I'm saying no. Because it's entering in the temple of their being. It's, it's a sacred act to touch. And it's a privilege. And I, I ask if I may touch because I want to know. You know the word touchy? I want to know. Uh, I want everyone around in the class to hear that I'm asking permission. And I want to... I want to be slow and deliberate about it. I could come and just go, tch, 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 tch. oh, that feels great. I want to be slow and deliberate about it for me and for them. And I feel it's a way of showing respect. And so 
if someone is lying in relaxation pose and I feel their shoulders are like this, you know, on the floor, they're lying like this, I might come up to them and sit down and I'd say, I'd like to slightly put my hands under your shoulders and open them a little to the side. May I touch you? And then I, I move slowly. And then I slowly go. Then I slowly open. And they usually go, mm. But it's a dance. It's a mutual experience of boundaries and power and choice. It's not to be done casually. Some people, you know, I, and I also want to say, I should have preceded probably this. I create deliberately, hopefully, an atmosphere in which people can say no to me in my yoga class. And I say, you know, if I ask to touch you or one of my assistants who trained, if they ask to touch you, you can say no. And I, and I tell them, do you know what happens when you say no to me? I will say, okay. And I, and I sometimes say to them, are you in a relationship where you know you just can't say no? Because if you say no, you're going to pay. You know, do you know what I'm talking about, Ross? I do. I do. You just yeah. go, okay, they really want us to come. I don't want to go. I can't say no because then we'll hear about it for three months or whatever. And so I create an environment. I use humor. I use repetition. I, I, I try to give the example and someone says, no, I say, no mistake. And I just, you know, I don't ask why. I don't convince. I don't try to force them in any of the social situation to force them to you know, touch them. So there are, there are certain places on the body one should never touch. I mean, I've seen yoga teachers have their students in child's pose rolled up on the floor and they lie on them and they, it, it, it's just physiologically or anatomically not a good idea. And it's just too intimate and it's not what we're about, I think. So how are you now with this discussion? Do you want to go somewhere else or? No, I, it, it reminded me of a quote that I had written down from the book. Mm -hmm. And if I can mm -hmm. share it, um, mm -hmm. it's about the getting the student to say yes, creating that ah. space where they can say no. So this is what you say. When they, the student say yes out loud, they're not just saying yes to me, rather they're saying yes to themselves. This means they're owning their choice and thus their neuromuscular system is now actually tuned into and in harmony with their wishes. In other words, when they say yes firmly and clearly, they are all in. Absolutely. So there's actually a neuro- I like that. Who it's wrote great. that? Yeah, it's really- and the Gives thing me chills. I mean, <laughs> it's so empowering. And this is what I want us to do as teachers, empower our students to be free, to feel, how does that feel? Doesn't, I give them an instruction, or how, how does that feel? It doesn't feel that great. Okay, let's try this. Like, it's not me imposing a cookie cutter shape on you in asana class. It's me conjuring and, 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 and creating and exciting you and seducing you into the excitement of trying something new. And then when you try something new and you do it, the victory is as it should be yours, not mine. I don't use the force of the social situation, my personality, my humor, 
whatever to make you do something because the whole idea is for you to uncover the yoga. You approach the asana as a question. Can you tell <laughs> us about that? I really like that. Okay. So let's say triangle pose, a pose that many people who do yoga know about triangle pose. All right. So when you're doing triangle pose, you're what people tend to do is they learn one way to do it and they're performing the pose. So I like to think of the pose as a question. I say to you, you're in my class, for example, trikonasana. I don't say it that way, but for this discussion, I ask you a question called trikonasana and you give me an answer. It's like the Socratic method. I ask you a question. Urvadhanurasana, and then you show me Urvadhanurasana. I say, I have an idea. You might like it better if you put your hands here. Would you like, or in triangle pose, I'm a little concerned about your front knee. Would you turn your foot out a little more so your knee is in line with your foot? I think that your knee will be happier. Oh yeah, that does feel better. My suggestion to you is that you don't go quite down so far. Here, take a block. And now find home right here and right now. Don't be in the future stretching for the floor. Find home where there's just enough stretch to get your attention, but there's enough ease to give you pleasure in this moment. You know, it's a conversation you have with yourself, Trikonasana. It's not a performance for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'll just take this moment to remind everybody who's here live that uh, Judith will be taking your questions shortly. So please, uh, we've got a couple in already. Please keep them rolling in and we'll get to as many of those as we can. Now, I read an interview that you did. Uh, it's, it was an online on, on Yoga U back in 2017. Mm -hmm. you talk I do about a lot of work with Yoga U online. Okay, okay. And you use the term, the physicality of spirituality. I'm wondering if you can speak to the tendency in the mind to dissect or split apart or separate things and the power in approaching our yoga practice in this holistic and integrative way. I had a feeling, a sense of intuition that you were going to ask a question like that. So I pulled out a quote from me that I want to read you, okay. not from the book. So let me start, start step back. I was raised in the South and I went to church because I have always been drawn to that which cannot be seen or known with the mind. Uh, and when I started my first asana, when I took my first asana class, I felt so relieved that someone knew that movement was a sacred act. So to become spiritual is to become fully human. It's not a separation. And so anyway, I went to church and we, they talked a lot about sin, all the ways you could sin, right? And much, much later in my life, I realized that there's only one sin, quote unquote. And that's the false belief in separation. Because if you talk to a physicist, we're all just swimming in a sea. Atoms and electrons and form is a you having a form appearing to have a form is ross and me appearing to have the form is judith is just perception 
that's what I'm able to perceive. But if I were a different kind of, I could see the space between all your atoms, right? So there is no separation between the body, the emotions, the mind, the self. There, the, the consciousness is inhabiting this location, but there is no separation. There is no there. There is only here. So I think that asana, and Mr. Iyengar said a beautiful sentence, which is, my body is the altar that poses the asana or my prayers. Mm -hmm. So to me, it has to do with the intention with which I practice. Do, do, I, do I see the, and we have a poem that I might read later about the body. Uh, do I experience the, or let's just do this little practice right now, okay? All right. So sit in front of your sitting bones if you're able to. So you have a little arch in your back, not behind on your tailbone, but pubic bone moves down, chin drops. The first thing I want you to do is go to the geographic center of your brain. That means if you need to look at the screen for a second, in from the sides, from the front and back, and from the bottom and the top, where that converges in the middle of your head. Go to the center of your brain. Now release the root of your tongue. Imagine the heart is a lotus. Open the heart in all directions and feel the spaciousness above you, behind you, in front of you, below you, to the sides of you. Expand into that spaciousness that is also called consciousness. And now drop down into the deep pelvis and find the heartbeat of life, of the universe living itself embedded in your being. Namaste. So the universe is living through you. We are not living in the universe. So to me, there's a, and here's the quote, eventually, I have to read it because, you know. Yes, please. Eventually, the integrity of the asana becomes vibrant without effort. It becomes clear without struggle. And thus, it becomes a seat of refuge. Then we experience a quietness that spontaneously arises. So I have a story. Would you like a story about that? Definitely. So I was taking a class from the teacher, was it Mr. Ingar? And we were doing my favorite pose at the time, which is Paschimachanasana, which is sitting on the floor and just bending forward. And my hamstrings were non-existent. I mean, I was so stretched from dancing and being young and having lots of estrogen makes you looser and all of this. So I just was down there just totally like that. And it's very personal, but I'm happy to share it if it helps anyone. And I'm having the hound no longer going to stay and looked up and he was talking and, you know, and then suddenly 
without warning, there was this like whoosh feeling that something left me and something came into me. And I still felt the stretch, but there was no agitation or judgment or thought. And after however long, I have no idea, he said, come up. And Ross, I did not know what that meant. I was confused. It would be like I said to you, Ross, stop jumping up and down. Please stop. And you'd go, but I'm not jumping up and down. How can I stop doing something I'm not doing? So when he said to me, stop the pose, come up. I'm like, I wasn't doing anything. And, I, and then I started, and then I thought, how cool is this? <laughs> Ego, like, and this was so cool. And, and that's when I had my first understanding of what it really meant to take the seat, to take the asana. It's all about intention. That's wonderful. Thank you. Welcome. You know, I think it, it's, it's so, such a wonderful art and science, this practice, where if we follow the follow the the practice these these expansive experience can can alight on us at times it finds us mm -hmm. the pose finds us and we we're the the bucket and we take ourselves out into the backyard and find the rain finds us so open up and let go open up and let go that's all we need to do all the time no matter where we are open up let go If you're open to one it, second, one second, I am open. Please. A thought came. Letting go in asana teaches our nervous system. It teaches our mind. It teaches our emotions what it feels like to let go. It's the embodied sense of letting go. Right. And only people with a body can meditate, by the way. Ever notice that? Right. <laughs> it's fairly important in that process. Yes. <laughs> we have some nice questions here from, from our community. Um, the first one is from Esther, who says, yoga centers that I have attended speak a lot about quote unquote community, but my experience has been that Although the center provi centers provide a kind and welcoming experience, there isn't anything approaching true community. What are your thoughts on the role or importance of community in the yoga world? Well, you know, the Buddhists are friends. The Buddhists have a term called Sangha, which is the community of practitioners. And I think that we are at our infancy of understanding what true community means. Because true community means that we hold people accountable for their actions. And there are sadly many cases in which yoga teachers have harmed their students, injured their students, crossed every boundary you can imagine. You know what I'm talking about. I don't need to go into detail. It's not about the judgment of it. But we as a community have fallen down community by not holding them accountable and also supporting them in taking time off and looking 
more deeply at what's going on in them, why this was what, what they chose to do. If we really cared about them as a community, we would hold them accountable and we'd say, you can't teach for a year. We, we need to support you in healing. And there's none of that really. Just the wild west. You don't even need in the United States of America, you don't need any training to teach yoga. All you need, you only need one thing. You wanna know what that is? People willing to be your students. So there's no testing, there's no state laws, there's no anything. When I, when I went to physical therapy school, which I went after I was already teaching yoga because I wanted, I wanted to learn what they knew. And I also wanted to have a, something in my back pocket because it wasn't so clear at that time early on that you could make a living teaching yoga. And I had to take a course in ethics. I had to take state boards. I had to take written state boards. I had to take practicum with someone sitting there with a clipboard watching me, you know, with another student who was pretending to be having sciatica or whatever. You had to go in this room and, and he was watching you and your whole life is hanging in the balance, right? And that you get, you get a list. This is Mr. So-and-so and he has that sciatica and you have to examine him and he is getting tested also the student who's playing Mr. Smith, he has to understand the symptoms of sciatica and exhibit them so he knows what, what hurts him, what doesn't hurt him. You know, it was really hard. Passed it, thank God. But, I, but yoga teachers are, are doing so many things at once. We are being exercise physiologists. We're, we're being fitness instructors. We're being... Uh, counselors, we're being philosophers, we're being spiritual leaders, because people are projecting all these roles on us. And most yoga teachers have zero training in pedagogy, in the art of teaching. And that's one reason I wrote the book. What does it mean to actually teach someone? What, what is the most important thing to teach? How am I, what relationship am I going to have with my students? How am I going to language? How am I going to touch or not touch? We don't teach people. Like if you go to school to be a teacher, to teach the fifth grade, you have to study education and education theory and understand boundaries and all that. So you can tell I'm on my high horse a bit. <laughs> no, it's but good. These are important issues. They're very important issues. So I love the idea of community and I feel community a lot of times in a lot of places where I go. And I want to create a community, a sangha, in my class. So I guard the boundaries. You know, whenever it's a shasana, I'm paying attention. I'm paying attention. You might be upset or, you know, what's going on. I'm, I, but I also like, with my daughter Lizzie, we do a lot of online trainings together. And I do with others. Is I like to remind us that there is an invisible sangha. And that when we take a course together or even this short time together that we have, it connects us. And wherever you are in the world tomorrow and you get up to do your practice, someone who is listening tonight is doing his, her, or their practice at the same time. And to take refuge and comfort and succor in the fact that there are millions of people on that yoga mat with you.
while yoga is a practice we do, the wide practice is not just the poses, is something we do by ourselves, something we do alone, it does not follow that we have to be lonely while we do it. And you know, probably, and maybe our questioner knows, that when you go to a yoga class every week and you practice with people, you may not even know their name, but you feel connected to them. There is an invisible sangha. Thank you, Mr. Zub. Thank you for that. And thank you, Esther, for the question. Um, we're getting towards the end of our time. Do you have a couple of min extra minutes, Judith, if we take one more question before we close? I do. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. Uh, there's a question from Sandra, and this is something I was curious about too, just to hear a little bit about this. Sandra says, what were your experiences studying with BKS Iyengar? The first class I ever took in 1974 with BKS Iyengar, he stood us in rows according to height, because his first teaching was when he was 16 and he taught the military. So he stood us in six rows, you know, straight rows, in shortest to tallest. So I was the sec second one back in my row, not super tall in this lifetime. And we were doing Tadasana, mountain pose, initial pose. And he would walk by and he would sort of verbally pick on me. You're a yoga teacher. You can't even stand on your two feet. You know, this kind of thing. And he kept doing it. And I noticed it was irritating. I felt irritated. Like, okay, there's a lot of other people. Like, you know, get over it. Like, I hear you. I'm doing my best. Why are you bugging me? You know, this kind of inner conversation. He'd wonder, he'd come back. He'd start picking on me again. And then I started going into my poor little me. Why is he picking on me? I really don't get what he's saying. I wish he... And all of a sudden in one of those blinding flashes of the obvious, he's teaching me about the way I think and act in the world in Tadasana. This is a yoga teacher. And I looked at him with this big grin on my face and he grinned back and he never picked on me again. <laughs> but I did find over the years, and I studied in India and I studied here, I like so much of the method, but, but there was often too much of a harshness for me and he sometimes would hit people. And I fairly quickly became, with such respect for his practice in his, in his years of dedication, I did not want to be in the room where that was happening. That was not what I was then able to tolerate and do. So I do respect everything I learned from him. He shaped my life and my teaching. But I needed to find a softer, not that I, I love alignment, you know, I'm very specific, but I, I need a softer mm. a way of teaching and studying and practicing and communicating. That's wonderful. I definitely appreciate that approach more too. You're welcome. Discipline to me is not about harshness or forcing. It's about consistency. You know, you're going to sit at that piano and you're going to stay there. It's not, discipline is not from the outside. It has to do more with what we commit every day. Asana, 15 minutes. Pranayama, five minutes. 
meditation, five minutes, Shavasana, whatever. Like it's a every day I'm on my mat. Every minute I recognize and remember that I'm not my thoughts. Every, it's consistency. That's what brings progress, not force. And it comes from a joyful place then too, doesn't it? Yeah. There's more space for, there's more space. When we become receptive, everything we want comes to us. Ease and quiet. Thank you. Yeah. We're, we're, we're coming towards the end of our time and you have a, a beautiful poem to share with us to close. But before I ask you to share that, uh, I just want to say a big thanks to everybody who, who tuned in live for this conversation with Judith Hanson Lassiter. We've been speaking about her, her latest book, her 11th book. It's really, uh, as we were saying at the start before we went live, Judith, it's very readable. It is. I burned through it. It's really useful for teachers, for students, and for any level of yoga practitioner. Uh, it's called Teaching Yoga with Intention, The Essential Guide to Skillful Hands-On Assists and Verbal Communication. You can get it at banyan.com or in person at Banyan Books. Highly recommended. Uh, big thanks to Jacob, our uh, events curator and podcast producer and everyone on the Banyan Books team and in the Banyan Books community. Um, Judith, thank you so much for joining us. It's been wonderful to have you here. It's over too soon. I know, I know. Well, maybe we can have you back sometime. That's kind. Before we end, I'd also like to thank Jacob for his magical wizardry behind the scenes and you, Ross, for your preparation and your uh, support of the book and lots of other wonderful books and living your life in a way that supports others. And I'd like to thank everyone who listened and gave us the most valuable thing anyone has to give, which is their time, because you can get more of just about everything, but not time. So I honor and respect you all for listening and hope this contributed at least a little bit to your sense of well-being. So are you ready for the poem? Yes. It's called Sweet Body. Sweet, soft body that carries my radiant soul. I do not thank you enough. I do not enjoy you enough. I do not cherish you enough. More and more now, I feel an upwelling of gratitude for all you have given me. For the ability to dance, to laugh, to weep, and to inwardly soar with the beauty of this world for three babies, plump and juicy and full of spontaneous joy and curiosity for this miraculous life. For a heart that has been both broken and mended more than once. For the delicious taste of love. For the many chances I have had to make mistakes and then try to learn from them. Dear body, you are the true companion of my life, the vessel of my wonder, the holder of my felt intrinsic wisdom, the container of my sacred self. Forgive me.
So I'd like to ring the bells again, if I may. Yes, please. Turn your palms away from your body, inhale the breath. Inhaling, bring your palms together in front of your heart. Namaste. Namaste. May we may we live like the lotus at home in the muddy water. Good night. Goodbye. Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. Our podcast producer is Jacob Steele. The show is edited by Abdo Habani, and I'm your host, Ross Makichi. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books, or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com.